Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. Morning, everyone. Uh, I just want to do a quick shout out to my mom. It's her birthday today. Happy birthday, mom. She's watching online. Um, yeah. I love you. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, my name's Emil. Uh, I'm on staff here at Covenant Grace, and I look after our community groups here at CG. But today I'm going to be preaching for us. Um, and here we are at the end of another year. Today is it's literally the last day of, of 2023. Uh, and tomorrow we begin a new year. And, and what I love about having this time marker of a year is, is that when one ends, Another one begins, and, and as they end, uh, things of the old seem to pass away with it. And I say seem to, because that's how we tend to perceive it. It's, it's out with the old, in with the new, um, and we have a chance to renew many things as the new year begins, because it's the start of a, a new cycle, it's the start of regular rhythms once again. Um, and one of the things that, that I would love for us, as you heard Greg spoke about, we've got a building fund, and we've got all of these things happening next year. One of the things I'd love to see for us as a church in the new year is a renewed sense of, of trust in God, a, a renewed reliance in God. Uh, for those who feel like they have been doing that, for, for those that feel that, that they have been relying on God, um, maybe then an increase in trust and an increase in reliance, a, a deepening of trust and reliance in God. And, and the psalm that we're going to look at today, Psalm 62, it's aptly called a, a song of trust. And we're going to take a leaf out of David's book on how he processed trusting God through a, a difficult period in his life. So the text tells us a little bit about what happened with David, not too much detail, but we know that he, he encounters some wicked people that are trying to topple him from his high position. Um, and so David counsels his soul to trust in God alone for his salvation or for his deliverance from this trial, and, and this word alone is very, very important. We're going to see that repeated quite a lot in the text today. Um, it's very important because in moments of fear or anxiety, he makes a conscious decision to turn to God alone, and, and not to God and people, as we're going to see, or God and riches, but to turn to God alone for his deliverance. Um, and so trusting God alone is a key feature in the psalm today. So I'm going to read the psalm for us, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get right into it. So this is Psalm 62. If you've got a Bible, please turn there with me. If not, the text will be on the screen. Uh, My soul waits for God alone to the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, and inwardly, but inwardly they curse. Seller. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us, Selah. 
Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render it to a man according to his work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us today, Lord. Um, We want to thank you that it is your word that is speaking today, not me, Lord, and so I pray that your spirit would move in our hearts today, Lord. We we trust you for deep change. Uh, we trust that you would work amongst us today. Uh, Lord, let your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we start with the first two verses. Immediately, David puts his stake in the ground, and he says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock, my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. In God alone, and we see that twice in in the first two verses. And why? Why is that word alone so important? He he could have uh, omitted that word. He didn't actually need to put that word in there. He could have just said, for God, my soul waits in silence. He didn't need to put alone, but I want to suggest that he includes us. He includes that because he's trying to show us that there is nothing else around David That's in his focus when it comes to trusting God. His soul has one singular focus. David has one focus, and that is God. God is his singular focus. His deliverance comes from one place, and that is from God. He has only one rock, and that is God. He has only one fortress, and that is God. Only one God alone. There is no other supplier for the things that David needs, and and he's so absolutely sure of it that he tells us that he waits in silence. So if you look at some other translations, uh, the NIV says, my soul uh, rests in God alone. Uh, The CSB also uses the word rest. I am at rest in God alone. So just like David, when, when we realize that there's only one source from which our help comes, it must produce rest in us because we know that we don't have any other options. It's in God alone, only through God. And when we have this kind of confidence in God, when we have this kind of belief, when we have this kind of trust, when we focus on God in this way, it produces a a, a mental and an emotional stability in us. But it has to start in the right place. It has to start with who God is. And who better to tell us about God in his character than God himself? Not only has God displayed his faithfulness to David personally, but David has history to look back on to track God's faithfulness in his word and in his deed. Let's look at Numbers 23 verse 19. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? If we look at these metaphors that David uses, God is a fortress or a stronghold, uh, and David can say with great certainty, based on these these stable and very secure metaphors, David can can say with great certainty, I shall not be greatly shaken. I won't be moved. I shall not be shaken. And why is this? Because 
Has God not said and, and will he not do it? Has he not spoken and will he not fulfill it? So when turbulent times arrive, when our faith, faith is under threat, there is no other place to go but to the stronghold that is God alone. Nothing else, God alone. Or the cleft in the rock that is God alone, our hiding place in the rock, God alone. And both of these things, these fortresses, strongholds, these rocks, they're built on the word of a God who keeps that word. He honors that word. Now to move forward a little bit, it's interesting because if we zoom in on the next few verses, verses 3 and 4, David shifts his focus. So he's given us this big spiel and he said, this is where my heart's at, but I have some things that I need to say to the guys that have wronged me. So now his attention shifts from God and suddenly he goes on to his attackers. Um, he started really well. He started really strong. He, but then he took his eyes off the prize and he shifted his eyes onto his circumstances. So he says, how long will you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. So what do we learn about David's situation? We learned that his attackers are seeking to bring him down from, from his high position using false speech, potentially hypocritical behavior. What they're saying and what they're doing is not really matching up. In other words, in basic terms, they're lying. They're liars. They're saying one thing, but everything they're saying is, is colored in with some kind of nefarious agenda, and, and all in the hopes that they're going to bring David down. And, and clearly, it seems to be working, right? David refers to himself as, as a leaning wall and a fence that's about to give way, a tottering fence. He's obviously wounded by the comments. He, he even seems to ask at one point, how long? Uh, the implication being that this has been going on for some time now. This is not a new thing that's just happened, and I'm writing a psalm. It's been going on for some time, and, and it seems to wear him down even further. And it can often feel like that, I, I suppose, in, in different, difficult times. We, sometimes we can't see the, the end of the tunnel. It feels like we've been carrying a load for a very, very long time. And, and after a while, it does get really, really, really tiring. And for a second, we take our eyes off, off of God, and, and these things, they start to lie to us. They start to produce lies in our heads and our hearts. They begin to push on the leaning wall. They begin to push on the tottering fence. And suddenly, before we know it, we, we start to believe those lies. We start to live in the reality of those lies. Do you remember the original lie that threw everything off its axis? Did God actually say you can't eat from that tree? Did God actually say that? Did God say that he would deliver you from this and that? Did he really say that? Why are you still in this position 10 years later? Did God really promise to deliver you? And then our minds begin to respond. We start to go, hey, wait a second, lie. You've got a, you've got a bit of a point. God doesn't seem to be doing anything. Maybe I, I think I'll have, to, I'll have to do something. And suddenly it goes from God alone to God and me or even just me alone. And we stop trusting in God alone. If we're not focused... Lies force us into a place of taking matters into our own hands. And those are not the hands that matters should be in, not in our hands. But lucky for us, the psalm doesn't end there. David doesn't give up. 
in verse 4. Moving on to verse 5, we, we see David regain his clarity and, his, and, and he drives his stake into the ground one more time and he repeats, he repeats to himself the opening verses. He says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. What I, what I particularly love um, about the fact that he, that he repeats this is that he does it with a little bit more fervor. In verse 5, and instead of communicating as he did in verse 1, to tell us that this is the state that my soul is in, rather we see him coming back, commanding his soul to fall in line with the truth. He's taking his soul and he's saying, stop believing those lies and fall in line. Effectively, what he's saying is, oh my soul, fix your eyes on God again. Fix your eyes to the one who supplies hope. Set your feet upon the mighty rock and take refuge in him who promises to deliver you from turmoil. But here we see an imperative for us as well. What is the imperative? It's to trust in God alone. We have a responsibility to talk ourselves back into a place of trusting wholeheartedly and unwaveringly in God alone. And it often seems that you know, we're, we're really great at talking ourselves out of relying on God alone sometimes because you know, there's just too many unknowns. I don't know what's going to happen, and so I'm just going to stay in this area where I have control. Instead of taking a proactive approach, we take a reactive one. We proceed to live our lives under our own authority until something goes wrong, and, and then we're forced into a situation of trusting God. But that's only after we've tried a million and one other things. We, we don't go to God first. We want to try everything else first. And he makes it very clear here that God is not help for hire. That's not how this works. God is not help for hire when things are going badly for David. He doesn't just suddenly call upon God. God is not or shouldn't be our last resort. I love how David lays claims to each of the names that he refers to God by. And, and he says, this is my, it's my refuge the personal nature of this address shows us there's, there's an added level of trust between these two parties. There's, there's a personal relationship based on knowledge, based on what we know. David's not thumb-sucking what he'd like God to be for him. These are, these are all things that God has revealed to David. Um, he's revealed himself to be to David. And, and uh, what I find encouraging and what I find wonderful about God in the situation is that He's almost immediately faithful to David, even as the psalm is being penned. David speaks on the hope that God supplies. His tone changes from somber and despairing to hopeful, even as he writes. We're seeing David's trust in action. It's suddenly not just saying where he was in his heart, but now he is putting those things into practice. And, and what do we see? We see God's faithfulness in response to that. And we need to bear this in mind. David's situation has not changed since the beginning of the psalm. He's still in a bad situation. But God is faithfully supplying him with everything that he needs to endure his bad situation. 
And so again, there is a call for us to consider what it means to trust in God alone without having to compete with our own standard or our own logic or our own kind of processing, but what it means to trust fully in God alone. Now, I do have a question for you guys. I want to see some hands raised and feel free to, to not do that. But has anyone ever bought essential oils before? Some hands. Essential oils. Okay, good. Okay. Okay, so I haven't, just to be very clear. I haven't bought any essential oils. And I usually find that when the, the people selling that stuff stumble upon it, it's like the greatest discovery they've, they've found in their whole lives. They want to sell it to everyone. They just want to get that stuff on the market. Text me, send me a Facebook message, buy some essential oils. Uh, and I have nothing against it. I'm just saying it's interesting to me, like when you discover it, they just want to tell everyone about it. And in a similar way, David's trust in God, his active trusting in God, is beginning to spill over. And now, it doesn't just affect him anymore. There are ramifications for the people that are around him. We shouldn't forget that David is a person just like you and I, but while he's being a person like you and I, he's also still the king of an entire nation, and and he's responsible for leading them into what he deems is, is good. And now that he's discovered that to trust God alone is good for him, he's eager to share it with his people. So, so verse 8, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. In the image that, that David previously used, we, we see these hard, stable, strong objects, and, and maybe there's a risk of painting a cold picture of God. We, we don't want a cold picture of God. We want a balanced picture of God, a rock a fortress, a stronghold, very strong, very firm, potentially very cold. And these are not necessarily things that David wants you to pour out your heart to. But let's take a cue from Psalm 89, verse 26. It says, He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, the rock of my salvation. And so now there's this added dimension. David is he's attempting to highlight that God has a compassionate side. He has compassionate attributes. He encourages them and us to pour out our hearts to God. He's he's our Father, and He's eager to hear about it. Not not only our sorrows, but our joys, our requests, our triumphs. God invites us to pour out all before Him because He delights to commune with us. He delights in it. He's not only there as a protector. He's not only there as a shelter. He's not only there reactively, but proactively as a father and a friend, and we should always bear in mind that this is a relationship, and again, it's not help for hire. And if God is the benchmark in terms of who we are to trust in God alone, we find our hope in him alone, what does David think about the people that we shouldn't trust? What does he, what does he want to say to us about that? So verse 9 and 10, those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Now, I'm not suggesting we shouldn't trust people. Obviously, that's silly. 
And, and relationships will not get very far if we don't trust each other. So I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't trust each other, but at a fundamental level, people should not replace the spot that is reserved for God. So if we look at verse 9, uh, what does he mean? He refers to two types of men. He says, those of low degree, those of high degree. The degree doesn't matter, but whether low or high, both are, what are they? They're men. And both are likened to something that is insubstantial. Whether you consider a breath, a breath is as fleeting as a, a wink. It's, we do it all the time. It, it disappears immediately. And when you consider a delusion, it has no basis in the truth. It's a lie. It's not real. And so the point David is making is that to trust in man of any sort is foolish because when you put them together on a scale against God, he says the balances go up because they don't weigh anything. They just go up. God is heavier than those things. The balances go up because together they are lighter than a breath. Both of those things are lighter than a breath. They are nothing. To trust in man over God alone, it, it is futile. It is useless to do that. So here he's specifically referring to trusting people as an ultimate source of trust and as a fulfilling source of trust. And I'm sure that many of us can relate to this. Uh, um, when we've been let down by others, maybe we've had expectations of some people and we've been let down by others. Maybe we've let people down when they've expected things of us as well. But look at what Isaiah 40 says, verse 6 to 8. It says, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And so to trust in people, to set our hopes in people, to orientate our fundamental core values around other people, it will ultimately serve to disappoint us because people will fade just like grass fades. The only thing worth placing our trust in is God because his word has eternal value. If our hope is in people and that person dies, as, as we all do, we're all going to die, then so does our hope. But the word of God stands forever into eternity Similarly, David speaks of money. Money is usually a, it's a very touchy subject and it's a weird thing to speak about because um, we often hear the phrase, but we need money to live. We like to, we need money to live. We do. But the amount of times that maybe we hear, you know, if I just had a little bit more money, if I just had a little bit more, I'd be so comfortable. Sometimes we will even sacrifice time we'll, that was set aside for God to pursue more money. Sometimes we'll run our body physically through the ringer to pursue more money, only to wear ourselves too thin to invest time and energy into anything that really matters. But if we had to trust God in this area, what do you think, what do you, think you would say? Proverbs 30, verse 7 to 9. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. And then give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you 
and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of the Lord. When we do ask God for these things, we, we should be grateful for what we have because he's given us exactly enough of what we need in order for us to survive. 1 Timothy 6 verse 9 to 10, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Yeah, that's hectic. Verse 10 is is very clear. It says, no trust. Place no trust. Not even some trust. Zero trust. Have no vain hope. Not even some hope. No vain hope in these things. And if God blesses us more, we should be careful not to set our hearts on these things. Both of these things in particular seem to promise, they seem to promise so much, but when our hope is set on them, we will quickly find out that they are snares designed to trap us because they come and they go like day and night. People come in and out of our lives. Money comes in and out of our lives. Every month comes in and out. Well, I hope. (laughs) They are not firm like the rock. They're not firm like the fortress. They're not firm like the stronghold. But lastly, we get to the final two verses, and it says, Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. Why does he speak this way? So he speaks this way to emphasize the fact that he feels that he's, he's really learned his lesson in a very, very profound way. Once God has spoken, but twice I've learned this. Twice I've learned this lesson. And it seems to have stuck with him that he's, that he's learned this lesson. And what is that lesson? It's that true power, true power belongs to who? It belongs to God. It belongs to God alone. And this is where, this is why David's determination to trust in God and God alone, it's, it's so heightened. David understands that to gain power unto himself is absolutely futile. Why? Because he would never truly be the owner of that power. It's not David's power to command. If David had any power, true power, it was only because God granted him that power. But just as he grants it, he can just as easily remove it again because it belongs to him. It is God's power alone. It saved David from arrogance because he was only stewarding what didn't belong to him. It doesn't belong to him. In the same breath, he's able to speak of God's mercy. He says, he talks about his steadfast love. And, and this is not just any kind of, of love that we experience from God. This is covenantal love that God shares with his people, relational love. It's a loyal love to those whom is in, who, to whom he has entrusted himself. And so when we hold these two truths together, we think of a powerful God, one who's able to do absolutely anything that he wants. He can do whatever he wants. One that doesn't owe us a single thing, but then we hold it up against his mercy 
we consider that he's a powerful God, but he's a merciful God who acts to display mercy towards his people. Now, where do we see this wonderful picture come together in its entirety? In its entirety? We've got trust, we've got mercy, we've got power. And, and I believe that when David was writing this psalm, his mind was in a future reality of when Christ comes down to earth. When Christ comes to earth and what Christ accomplishes on the cross is a perfect display of God's power and a perfect display of God's mercy and his steadfast love towards us. And, and what does this show us here? It shows us there's, there's, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do about it. There's, there's no work that we can do. We have to place our trust in God alone for our salvation because he alone is our refuge. God alone. Not God plus our works. Not God plus our money. Not God plus our deeds. It is God alone who saves Salvation belongs to our God, and he is our refuge. So I want to close with a, a bit of a challenge for us. Um, as, we, as we head into the new year, I'd like to challenge us as a congregation to, to do a bit of a stock take in, in a few areas of, of our own lives um, that seem to be furthest away from being wholly submitted to God and, and then to make a conscious effort, just as David did, to wrestle our souls into a position of trusting God and trusting God alone. And, and maybe you're here this morning and you don't believe. Maybe you don't believe in Christ. Maybe you're just checking this out. And to you, I want to say, nothing else can save. It is only God alone who is our salvation. It's only God alone. It's only the things that God has done. It's not how much money you have. It's not how many people come into your life. It is only through God alone that you will experience the saving power of, of, of Christ alone. And so that's what I want to leave us with this morning. I, I pray that in the new year we will be a congregation that places our trust wholeheartedly in God alone to see things happen here at Covenant Grace. Amen. Thank you, worship team. I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, we, we want to thank you for your word to us today, Lord. We, Lord, as we reflect on the cross, as we, as we think about the work that you have accomplished, Lord, alone, Christ alone has accomplished this work. Lord, we want to pour out our hearts to you today in gratitude, Lord. We want to say thank you. There is, there is nothing else in this world that can save us. There is nothing else that can take the place that you took, Lord. There is no other sacrifice. Money will not fulfill us. Money will not save us. Relationships will not fulfill us. Relationships will not save us, Lord. It is only through Christ alone that we are saved. It is only through Christ's blood that we are made clean and are able to stand before you and to call you Father, Lord. We want to thank you for this incredible privilege. We want to thank you for this ability to trust you, Lord. When we can't see the way forward, you help us. Your spirit comes and your spirit helps us.
So Lord, as we declare to you now that Christ is our hope in life and death, I pray that you would minister to our hearts. I pray that you would encourage us, Lord. Help us to fix our eyes on you and on you alone for everything that we need. In Jesus' name, amen.